Amen. Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. We have had such an amazing month together as a church focusing on the Reformation and how God used the Reformers with all their flaws and uh, their desires to glorify Him to bring about an amazing reform in the church. And because of the Protestant Reformation, we are doing what we're doing here today. Just listen to a little list of the things that are in existence today because of the Protestant Reformation. The true gospel of Jesus was recovered. The life of the church was reformed and revived. The word of God was translated into the language of the people. You have a copy in our own language because of what happened at the Protestant Reformation. The gospel is clearly preached. Christian schools were birthed. There weren't Christian schools, and they grew out of the Protestant Reformation. The modern missions movement was launched through the Protestant Reformation. Commentaries were written because of the Protestant Reformation. Seminaries were started. Congregational singing was recovered. They were not doing that. They were going to church and sitting and listening to other people sing and in a language that they didn't even know. And that was all the singing that they were involved in. They weren't actually singing the songs. They weren't actually singing songs that were from the Scriptures. And, and the Protestant Reformation brought congregational singing to the forefront of the church. Martin Luther himself said, Preaching is what scares the devil the most. And if uh, we have a number two, he said singing is what would scare the devil the most. Because singing is Scripture being put to song in such a way that it can bypass certain uh, defenses that we have even in our own hearts. Uh, communion was served in both parts, the wine and the bread to the lay people. That wasn't happening. So there are so many different things that were reformed because of the Protestant Reformation. You can hear the word reform in there, Reformation. Things that we do this day that we would not have done or would not be doing had it not been for the Reformation. But it was also a protest, right? Protestant protesting. They were protesting, and they were specifically protesting against the way that the church was so man-centered. The Protestant Reformation was an attempt to reform aspects of the church and protest about aspects of the church. And the protests were against how man-centered the church was. Man was the ultimate authority. Man could offer God their own goodness. Man could do good works. So man deserves some of the praise. That's why the cry of the Reformation was to get back to Scripture, to the clear teaching of Scripture with regard to salvation. We've been studying the solas, the five solas. Sola is the Latin word for only or alone. Our English word is solo. You know, if somebody's playing or singing a solo, they're by themselves. These solas, uh, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, they're, they're modifying clauses. They're, they're clarifying things that are being stated, but we, we never really talked about what they're clarifying because we just say Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone. So what are they clarifying? What are they uh, speaking to? What, what are they actually, what are the clauses that they are speaking to? Uh, the clause is how we are justified before God. We are justified by faith alone. We are made right before God by grace alone. We are justified by Christ's work alone. And our justification is to the glory of God alone, and it's because of the Scriptures alone as our authority that we understand those things. The biggest question in the Bible is how can a good God forgive sinners? That's the biggest question in the entire Bible. That's the biggest problem in the whole Bible. How can a good God allow sinners into His presence? We have a problem 
Namely, our sin has brought about the wrath of God abiding on us. And God needs to break into the universe and justify ungodly people. What is our problem? Our our problem is twofold. We have the problem of being spiritually dead, Ephesians chapter uh, 2. We are spiritually dead. We are unable to raise ourselves from the dead. We need God to act. And we're also legally guilty before God. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinners. We are legally guilty. So every human being is spiritually dead and legally guilty. So God has to raise the dead and God has to find a way to pay the penalty for legally guilty people. Ultimately, the Protestant Reformation was a controversy with the Roman Catholic Church over how helpless we truly are. That was the issue. Can we raise ourselves from the dead? Can we justify ourselves? Can we make ourselves righteous? Can we pay the penalty in full or even in part somehow? Luther said no. And his response in a book called On the Bondage of the Will was a response to a man named Erasmus. And Erasmus wrote the freedom of the will, that you have the ability on your own to a certain degree to pay the penalty for your sins and to raise yourself from the dead. And Luther responded to that biblically by writing a book called On the Bondage of the Will. In 1537, nine years before Luther died, he wrote uh, an opinion of his own writings, and he said, all of them can go away. Over 40 volumes that I've written, throw them all away, it's fine, just keep two. Keep On the Bondage of the Will, you have to keep that one because that's the main, the essence of everything we're fighting for in the Protestant Reformation, and keep the catechisms. Make sure that we have the authority of God's Word being spoken in the lives of everyone in a question and answer format. Why? Why is this the issue? Because Luther knew beneath indulgences, beneath praying to Mary, beneath purgatory, the issue at hand is can we do anything to save ourselves? We are spiritually dead, legally guilty. Can we do anything to fix that problem? Erasmus said we could. The Roman Catholic Church said we could. But Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, the Reformers said we could not. And if salvation was all about God and His grace justifying sinners through the gift of faith alone by Christ's substitutionary death and resurrection alone, then God alone gets the glory. That was the heart of the Reformation. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We have to lay a foundation biblically um, that will set the tone and give us an understanding of this final sola, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 8 will be where we lay our foundation. Let's read these together. We'll pray and and ask God to supernaturally elongate our time and, and help us to have an understanding of His glory. Isaiah 42, verse 5, Thus says the, the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. And I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Father, it's so clear that you will not give your glory to another, and so we desire, though we don't have graven images here, we don't worship 
idols of that nature made from human hands, but we absolutely worship idols crafted in our human hearts. All of us love things in this world, exchanging the glory that you clearly have alone for the glory of the things that you have made. God, I pray that we would not rob you of glory. There is just no greater condemnation that we could have in our account than robbing God of the glory that you alone deserve. And so, God, I pray for two things this morning. God, I pray that you would enable us to see the places where we seek glory, where we seek to enjoy anything less than your glory, where we have idols of our own human desires, our own human affections and adorations and makings. And then, God, I pray that you would show us your glory, just as Moses prayed, show me your glory. Show us glory. So many people are blinded to the glory that is so evident and so clear in this book. Because it's a book, we we long to see a person, we long to see, uh, have an experience, have something that we can interact with, and a book seems so bland. A book seems so academic. But God, this book is the book that the Reformers died for. To get it into our hands today so that we could see glory. Because ultimately, the glory that we see in creation, though it is glorious, is nothing compared to the glory that we see in your word. So God, open our eyes to behold glory in these pages that these words would cascade over our souls and give us an affection for Christ. I pray that your glory would hit our spiritual taste buds. And for those in this room that do not yet know you, that today they would taste and see that the Lord is good. And as they get just a tiny sliver of your glory, that their hearts would never be able to move past it, never be able to get over it, that that would be the greatest desire of their lives. God, may we taste of the living waters. May we taste of the living bread, and may we be satisfied this morning. All to the praise of the glory of your grace. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Latin for to God alone be the glory. So we need to ask ourselves three questions this morning. Three questions, I'll give them to you and then we'll go through each one. First question, why does God do everything that he does? Second question, why should we do everything that we do? And third question, why is it good that we're made for God's glory? So first question, why does God do everything that he does? Second question, why should we do everything that we do? And third question, why is it good that we are made for God's glory? So let's take them in order. Number one, why does God do everything that he does. We already read in Isaiah chapter 42 that he will not give his glory to another. He loves his glory. He cherishes his glory. He will not give his glory to another. But we're asking a slightly different question here. Why does God exist? Why does God create the world? Why do we exist? Why does God do everything that he has done? The answer, very simply, is he does it for his own glory. He does everything that he does for his own glory. That's the answer, and we need to back it up with Scripture. If I just give you the answer and then we walk away saying, well, Patrick said so, we have uh, defiled what the Protestant Reformation was attempting to overturn. 
If you can't see it here in this book, don't believe anything that I'm saying. So the biblical answer is that God does everything for his own glory. So first we have to define what glory is, because this is a term that we throw out, we use a lot. It's a very Christianese term. God does everything for his glory. To God alone be the glory. What is glory? Um, in the Hebrew, the word is kavod, uh, God's glory. Glory, kavod, means weightiness or substance, something that's heavy. So glory in the Old Testament, the word that's used in the Old Testament is something that's heavy, something that you are overwhelmed by. If you try to pick it up, it'll squish you. It's bigger than you. It's massive. It's weighty. In the New Testament, the word is doxa, where we get doxology. And doxa means a brilliant light, something that shines so brightly that you can't really look at it for very long. Just think about if you look at the sun, you look at the sun for a second, first of all, your eyes start watering and it kind of burns, and second, you close your eyes and what do you see? You see the sun, right? You close your eyes and you see darkness, but you still see a spot that is the circle of the sun. It's so radiant that literally what happens in your body is it paralyzes the nerve cells in your retina, it paralyzes the nerve endings in your retina, and it can't refresh fast enough because they've just been blown away by what's happened. So doxa in the New Testament, for the word for glory, is that. You stare at something and it sticks with you. You can't get over it. You can't look at it for very long. It paralyzes you, so you can't release that image. It stays with you. It stuns you. To see the glory of God is something like that. To see it is for the retina of your soul to be unable to let go of it. That's so why the psalmist says, I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. I've tasted of his glory, and I can't get over that. Um, we had the privilege of hanging out with the Orozco's a couple months ago. They're foodies. They, they love food. They know food well. My wife and I don't. If we have a free date night, it's Chipotle. Uh, every date night is Chipotle. If we have a gift card to Chili's, we'll go to Chili's. But every date night, it's Chipotle. And so we trust them with our stomachs, and we said, take us to where you want us to go. So we went to this restaurant. I don't even remember what the name of it was, but we had a dessert. I don't even know what the name of the dessert was, but we had a dessert that changed my life. Um, I will never again have chocolate. I, every chocolate that I experienced, it was like just glorious chocolate that came probably from heaven somewhere. And Every time that I eat chocolate from now moving forward, like Halloween, we're going to get all sorts of candies. We're going to eat the candies. I'm going to compare it to that chocolate and say, eh, this is no good. Every, every chocolate will now be, that's the standard of chocolate. It was amazing. Uh, we're going to go back to this restaurant and just eat the chocolate there. It was phenomenal. That's what David is saying. I've tasted of something that I can't get over. Everything is now going to be compared to that. I can't get over it anymore. So everything that I enjoy in this world is satisfying, right? I can still eat a Milky Way and I enjoy it, but then it's, eh, I wish I could have that. That's what David is saying. That's what glory is. We taste of something and it changes our appetite and we say now we have a new standard of something that satisfies. You guys know Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, Isaiah sees the, the Lord, the train of his robe is filling the temple with glory. And it says, the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his what? What? Filled with his glory. See, this helps us define glory. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You would expect it to say the whole earth is filled with his holiness. We're staring at the amazing nature of God. He is holy. He is set apart. Holy is not just sinless, though it is sinless. It's much more than that. Holy, holy, holy. You're set apart. There's no one like you. There's no one like you. There's no one like you. And the whole earth is filled with your, we could say it this way, holiness on display. Um, Glory is God's holiness on display. When God's holiness goes public and separates him from everything else, we see we're creatures, he's the creator, he's absolutely set apart from us. So glory is what God intrinsically is. It's the value of who he is. One writer says, it's the outward radiance of the intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. That's why you see the glory of his might, the glory of his grace, the glory of his power, the glory. It's all showing us that there is no one like him. Glory is not something that he has or possesses, like he's made the house of God or this is the city of God. The glory of God is not something outside of him that he owns. It's him intrinsically. It's who he is. And our reaction to it is exactly what David does in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 to 13. He says, Blessed are you, O Lord our God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. You exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. That's our reaction to glory. We see it and we say, I I just can't, I got to run on sentences. I got to keep talking about how amazing he is. So that's what glory is. So why did God make everything in the world for his own glory? Let me give you some texts that you could point to. Isaiah chapter 43, let's just turn there. It's one page over in your Bibles. Isaiah 43 verses 6 through 7. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So form, I've, I've made these people for my glory. I've made these people for my glory. Why does God do everything that he does? He does it for his own glory. Just think about humans. He's saying here, I've made humans for my glory. Think about Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Let's make man and woman in the image of God. What's an image for? An image is to image. An image is to set forth something else. God made humans in his image so that the world would be filled with reflectors of God's glory. We should ask the question, how are we doing at reflecting the image of God? God made humans for his glory. God made nature for his glory. Why is the universe so glorious. Think about this. There are more stars in the universe than sounds or words that have ever been spoken in all of human history. Why is that? Seems a a little unnecessary. Verse 1 of Psalm 19 tells us why the heavens declare what? The glory of God. The universe is made for the glory of God. God is giving us a little hint 
of what he's like in the universe. And that hint, by the way, is an understatement of who he is. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, my glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 10, for my namesake, I will not give my glory to another. I will do these things for my namesake. So I'll make man for my namesake, for my glory. I'll make nature and creation for my glory. God does everything for his glory. Let me give you just a list. As I was trying to figure out in the Bible, where does it say God does something for his glory? I came up with six pages, single-spaced, of just lines of text. This is what God did for his glory. So I'm going to shorten it to half a page, but I still want to read it. All of these have explicit verses next to them. I don't think that we're going to have time to turn to them, um, but they are straight from Scripture. God chose his people for his glory. God creates us for his glory. God called Israel for his glory. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. God raised Pharaoh up to show his power and glorify his name. God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name. God gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name. God did not cast his people away for the glory of his name. God saved Jerusalem from attack for the glory of his name. God restored Israel from exile from the glory, for the glory of his name. Jesus sought the glory of his Father in all that he did. Jesus said that he answers prayer so that God would be glorified. Jesus endured his final hours of suffering for God's glory. God gave his son to vindicate the glory of his righteousness. God forgives our sins for his own glory. Jesus receives us into his fellowship for the glory of God. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. God instructs us to do everything that we do for the glory of God. God tells us to serve in a way that would glorify God. Jesus is coming again for the glory of God. Jesus' ultimate aim for us is that we would see and enjoy the glory of God. God's plan is to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory, and everything that happens will redound to God's glory. And even in the new Jerusalem, the glory of God replaces the Son. God does everything that he does for his own glory. Everything. That's why everything in the universe exists. And that is such good news for us because now we know something about everything. You and I know something about everything in the universe. There are billions of things that I will never know, and that's totally fine. But I know something about everything because I know why God made everything in this world. And not only do I know something about everything, I know the most important thing about everything. I know the most important thing about everything in the world, and that's that it was made for the glory of God. So we know the purpose for why God made the world, and since we know that, we know the purpose for why we're here. Question number two. Question number one, why does God do everything he does? He does it for his own glory. Question number two, so why should we do everything that we do? Well, if God made us to glorify him, then the answer is to glorify him. We should do everything that we do to glorify God. Why are we here? What's the number, number one question kids ask? The number one question little kids are asking. Why? 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 Why this? Why this? Why that? Why are we here? Why did God give us life? Why did God make us the way he made us? And what's the point? What, what's our purpose? In 1646 through 1648, theologians in Great Britain got together to answer this question. Why did God make us? And they formed what's called the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Catechism. You know this question. It's the first question. What is the chief end of man? Why are we here? What's the whole point of us being here? 
And they said it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's to glorify God. That's the whole reason we're here. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, you know it. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do everything to glorify Him. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 was a huge text, enormous text in the Protestant Reformation. Because another thing that the Reformers were protesting against, they were protesting the fact that in the Catholic Church there was a huge divide between what would be called the sacred and the secular. We have sacred things and we have secular things. We can enjoy the secular things for secular things, enjoy the sacred things for sacred things. We clean up our acts, we do the sacred things, then we can go out and do the secular things. There were huge divisions. That's where we have monasteries. We have monks that would set apart their life. We will not do anything that's secular. We won't get a secular job, a worldly. We're only going to do sacred things. And Martin Luther went to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, and said, no, 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 no. You can eat or drink or sleep or do everything to the glory of God. There's no divide between sacred and secular. It's all sacred. We are always living in a perpetual worship service. Deuteronomy chapter 6 no matter what you're doing, always be teaching about God. So everything should be done for God's glory. Think about 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul specifically tells us two things. In the most mundane things in your life, eating and drinking, you can glorify God. He doesn't say in your missions works or in your small groups. He says in your eating and drinking. So most mundane and most comprehensive in whatever you do. There's no divide. We are called to glorify God. That is our job. That's why we were made. That's our purpose. But this does not mean that we are called to make God glorious. We are not called, when we are called to glorify God, that does not mean add things to his glory. He has 97% glory. We have 3% that we give to him. Glorify is not the same as beautify. We don't make him look better than he actually is. To glorify means to display his glory, to show forth and display that he is already glorious. To glorify him is to image the fact that he is all glorious. Apart from us, without us, he's all glorious. We don't improve on the glory, we point to the glory. The biblical word that's used for this, other than glorify, is exalt or magnify. We are called to exalt God. Um, some of the worship songs that churches will sing, you know, be lifted higher, be lifted higher, be lifted. It's like he's really low, and we just got to pick him up. Poor guy. We got to lift him up, lift him up, lift him up. That's not what the Bible's saying. He's not lowly, and he needs our help to get him up in, in the sky and glorious. That's not the point. He has majesty. He has glory. Magnify and exalt is to show forth and point to the glory that he already has. Just think about the word magnify. There's two definitions that we could use for magnify. Two definitions we could use for magnify. One's heresy and one's doctrinally sound. One is a microscope. Some people think about magnifying God as a microscope. Um, he's really small, and we have to make him bigger through an instrument. We have to make him bigger can't really see him. He's really small. And we have to, that's, that's heresy. He, he doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need us to glorify him. The true biblical definition is a telescope. He's enormous, but he's so separate from us. He's so removed from us. He's so other than us 
that we need an instrument to be able to see him on full display. The moon looks tiny, but it's bigger than I am. So it's not a microscope needed to look at it. It's a telescope that will open up and expand to show me who he truly is. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, My earnest expectation and hope is that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I want people to see his glory, whether I live or whether I die. That's why we are here. We are here to glorify God. That was the purpose you and I were made for. Why did God make everything that he made? He made it so that he would be glorified. Why were you and I created? What is our purpose in life? It's to glorify God. So we have to ask the question, can people place their eye to you, on you, and view God more clearly? Because you are a telescope of the radiance of the glory of God. Can they see God more clearly because of who you are, because of how you speak, because of the attitudes you have, because of the emotions that you share? Can they see God clearly? That's why you and I were made. The problem is that we are so blind to the glory of God that we prefer to be the center of all things. We prefer to be the center of our own universe and to steal from God the glory that he alone has. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that we're without excuse. God has clearly shown he is glorious. He is creator. But we take what's clearly evident and we twist it. We stop short. What's supposed to point us to God, we just stare at and enjoy that as God. God gave us intellect. God gave us the ability to reason and to think because that will image his reasonableness, his intellect, his amazing wisdom. But instead of being pointed through what he has made, instead of being pointed through that back to his glory, we terminate on the pointers and we make religions out of them. Intellectualism, reasoning. We just say, okay, these will be our gods. God gave us emotions. God gave us physical abilities to sense things. But if we make those gods instead of letting those be pointers back to the glory of God, we fall short of his glory altogether. And that's exactly what Romans 3.23 says. We fall, we've all fallen short of his glory. The pointers, we terminate on the pointers. We enjoy them. We stop there. And we think, man, these pointers point to the fact that God loves me and made things for me and I'm the center of the universe because he made all these cool things for me instead of seeing God's the center of the universe because he made all of these things, period. We contend for supremacy with God. We rival God. We steal from God. We think we know better than God. We think we could be God. We functionally live out the Tower of Babel every day where we say, let's build a tower to God into the heavens where we can kill him, we can sit on the throne, and we can be God. But the universe was never intended to portray the importance or significance of man. The universe is intended to give man a tiny glimpse of the majesty of God. We fall short. We fall short. That's called sin, falling short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. We deserve to die. We are spiritually dead, and we are legally guilty. 
but God loves us. He does everything that he does for his glory, so he creates a plan of salvation that's given to us in Scripture alone. You can't look at a tree and understand God's plan of salvation. You have to look here. General revelation, what God has generally revealed himself to us about himself is seen in creation, but special, specific revelation is here. You need Scripture, and you need Scripture alone to point to the plan of salvation, to give us an understanding that we are sinners, that we can't get to God on anything that we can do. It's going to be only by His work alone. That's, that's grace alone. He does the work on our behalf and gives us something that we could never deserve or earn. How do we obtain it? He gives us a gift. How do we get that gift? Do we do anything to get it? No, it's by faith alone that we even receive that gift. So we're justified by grace alone through faith alone. And it's because of Jesus' finished work on the cross alone that we are spiritually raised from the dead and we are declared not guilty. That, those are the four solas that we've already covered. And because Jesus does all of the work, he gets all of the glory. The cross is the apex of the glory of God. The salvation of sinners at the cross of Christ through the gospel is the greatest display of God's glory. Our greatest fall from imaging God's glory allows God to give us the greatest picture of his glory by saving sinners who don't deserve it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, we sang this in Come Praise and Glorify. God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. It's all to the praise of his glory. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. Even in heaven, we are going to be singing songs, praising God for 10,000 things, thousands upon thousands of things, but the greatest of all of those, and ultimately the culmination of all of those things, is praising God for sending His Son, Revelation 13, 8, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. God provided a Lamb. God provided His own Son. And anything that we would add to that is to rob God of His glory. There's no greater charge against us than to say that we have robbed God of his glory. Remember what happened to King Herod when he robbed God of glory? He was struck by an angel and um, eaten by worms for five days and died. Um, don't rob God of his glory. Any departure from Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone would be to rob God of his glory. Conversely, when our only authority is God's word, God is glorified. When grace is our only standing before God, freely given without any merit of our own, God is glorified. When faith is our only means of access to that grace, exclusive means by which God's grace is given to sinners, then God is glorified. When Jesus is our greatest treasure and he is our only savior, then he is glorified. When we are in bondage to sin and God intervenes and does all the work for us, all we can say is thank you and to God alone be the glory. God alone deserves the glory. So, Glory is weightiness, it's holiness on display, it's brilliance, and God does everything that he does for his own glory. And specifically, the apex of his glory is the grace that he gives to sinners to rescue them by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. We know why God does everything he does. We know why we should do everything that we do. 
And now I want to end by asking this third question. Why is this good? I don't know if you've ever thought this about God, and if you have, it's totally okay. I've wondered before, is God just some angry grandma, angry grandpa, who's just up there in heaven saying, nobody loves me, and I want to be loved, and since I'm God, I can tell people, you have to love me. Is God just mad and feeling unloved and feeling like nobody really thinks about me anymore? Nobody really cares about all the awesome things I've done. So let me command them, they have to praise me. There are many people who are turned away from Christianity because this is their thought of God. Why are all these commands in Scripture to praise God? That's so mean of him. What if I want to do something else? And he's saying, no, you must praise me. I'm awesome, and you need to tell me that. If we were to do that, we would be absolute sinners and nobody would ever want to be our friends. But God does this, and it's right that he does this. How? Well, number one, we know that God isn't needing any praise from us, right? Acts chapter 17, verse 25, God isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't command us to praise him because he needs praise. That's the first hint. So it's not based on his need. It is based on a need, but it's not based on his need. Whose need is it based on? Going back to the Westminster Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Notice how they specified man's chief end singularly is to do two things. Man's chief end, the whole point we're here is to do two things. So the two things aren't really two, they're one, because they are the end for which we exist. Glorify God and enjoy Him. Glorify God and enjoy Him. John Piper has taken that and out and put by to give us an understanding of that. Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him. But we, we don't need that by in there to see exactly what's happening. Your chief end, the whole purpose that you were created, is to glorify God and enjoy Him, one and the same. By enjoying Him, you're glorifying Him. And by glorifying Him, you will find the greatest satisfaction. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. When we are most enjoying Him, He's most glorified. When we are most satisfied in Him, He's most glorified. So when we are finding our purpose and glory in Him, to glorify Him, we are most satisfied. So he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, and we are most satisfied not only in him, but in all of life when we are living to glorify him. So why does God, why is it good? This is question number three. Why is it good for God to command us to glorify him? Why is it good that God made us for his glory? It's good because God delights for us to be happy. He wants us not to use us as slaves, just do what I tell you to do. He wants us to meet um, our needs. He wants us to be able to praise him so that we would be having our own needs met, our own satisfaction culminated. He doesn't want us to meet his needs. He doesn't have any. But he wants us to be glad as we praise him and he meets our greatest needs. What would make us truly happy? It's glorifying God. It's enjoying Him. It's being with Him. He doesn't, he doesn't want to use us. He's not saying, praise me because I have nobody else who's doing it and I need somebody to glorify me. God does want us, but He doesn't want us as slaves to run His errands. He wants us as children 
who are satisfied in all that their Father is for them in Jesus. And that's what glory is. Glory is the name that we put on that, finding our satisfaction in Jesus. Philippians 1, 20 through 21, you know 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And right before that, Paul says, I want to magnify Christ, whether by life or by death. How can I show the world that I'm most satisfied in him? When everything is taken away, I have gain. I lose everything, and I actually gain something. That's how we can show him to be greater than anything we could possibly comprehend. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So when God is saying, praise me, glorify me, he's actually saying, be happy. Find your satisfaction in that which will truly satisfy you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's why it's good that God gives us those commands. So why did God make us? Why did God make everything? It's to his own glory. We have a purpose in life. We were made to glorify God, and we have failed in that purpose. And so the apex of the glory of God is when Jesus comes and dies for sinful man and redeems for himself a people group. And it's good that God commands that we glorify him. It's gracious of God. He's not saying, I need praise. He's saying, you need satisfaction, and you were meant to be satisfied by God. One last question, just really quickly. If God alone gets the glory, which he does, what about these three verses? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses like these as well. Verse 18, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Wait, we're, we're getting glory. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be, but we know that when he appears we will be like him. And then Romans 8.30, these whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom God has justified, he glorified. He's going to glorify you and me. Well, time out. We just said we don't want to rob God of glory. How is that going to work? Why is God so intent on making us glorious with his own glory? Remember in John 15 when Jesus says, I want to make your joy complete and I'm going to do that by making my joy your joy. Heaven is going to be a place where we finally, fully, ultimately, and only are satisfied by the glory of God. No more fight over sin. I love these things, but I really want to be satisfied by glory. And for us to house that satisfaction, to house the glory of God and be enjoying it and, and satisfied by it, God needs to glorify us. You, you can't stick a, a 747 engine onto a smart car and say, now we're good to go. Go ahead. That won't work. You, you can't have a little teacup and say, we're going to put the, the oceans into this teacup. No. God says, you are a tiny little teacup, and you're going to house and enjoy the entirety of my glory for all of eternity, so I need to do something to you so that you can do that. And he does it. He does it, and he does it for his own glory. So we have to ask the question, are you living to be glorified by, or to glorify God? Are you living to be satisfied by God? Are you enjoying and savoring the glory of Jesus? Are you aligning yourself for the purpose that you're made? If you're not, no wonder life is so frustrating. If you're not living for the purpose that God made you to live for, you're going against your design. Be like sticking a Lamborghini on the 405 instead of on the Autobahn. It wasn't made for 405 traffic, and it's going to be really, really frustrated. You and I were made to glorify God. Turn to one last passage as we end our 
study of the solas. Go to John chapter 17. We will end here. So much more can be said. And just as you're turning, a huge thank you to Sergio and to Brian for the way that they were able to bring the truth of God's word, glorious truths to bear in our hearts to give us a greater understanding of these amazing truths of the gospel. This is Jesus' desire, high priestly prayer. We're going to get to it in a couple months in our study through the gospel of John. Jesus says, Father, this is John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, this is all believers whom you have given to me, will be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given to me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. You and I were made to see and savor the glory of God. Everything that God does is for his glory. His salvation of your soul is for his glory, to his praise alone. And he has called us to find our satisfaction in him. Let's pray together and ask God to do that in our hearts. God, please grow our spiritual taste buds to taste and see of the glory of God. You are good. May we not terminate on the things of this world that should point us to your glory. May we let everything in this world point us to how majestic you are. We praise you for your word, which is our only authority. Uh, The pastors here, the elders here, have no authority whatsoever. It is your word that has the authority. And so we submit to your word alone and listen to your voice singularly alone. It's by grace that we have been saved through faith, which is not of ourselves. Both of those are a gift from God through Jesus Christ alone. And so you deserve the praise alone. To you and you alone be the glory, the dominion, the power, the majesty, the honor forever and ever, now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand together as we conclude our